Hello and welcome to another episode of Inside the Benton. I'm Hannah Avalos, your host, and in this episode, we will be discussing Sadie Barnett, Legacy and Legend, an exhibition currently on view at the Benton Museum of Art at Pomona College. This exhibition is centered on a 500-page surveillance dossier created by the FBI on Rodney Barnett, the artist's father, and the founder of the Compton chapter of the Black Panther Party in 1968. The dossier chronicles the tactics of harassment and intimidation experienced by Barnett's father, and in the exhibition, Sadie Barnett uses her own visual language to assert resilience in the face of a history characterized by oppression. In this episode, I interview both Sadie Barnett and the Benton senior curator, Rebecca McGrew and we will discuss the origins and content of the exhibition, as well as the steps they took to make it all happen. First, we will hear from our senior curator, Rebecca McGrew, who recalls how she was first introduced to Sadie Barnett and her work. I'm Rebecca McGrew, the senior curator, and the Sadie Barnett Legacy and Legend is a, it's a project series. Even though it's a partnership with the Pitzer College, art galleries. Um, It's actually also number 54 in the project series. And um, so the project series is a program I developed in 1999, where I wanted to showcase um, kind of emerging, under-recognized, lesser-known artists, mostly in Southern California. And then um, in the last couple years, when we knew we were going to be moving into our new beautiful building, I thought this is a time now to maybe expand and begin to bring in artists from outside the area. So Sadie Barnett is the first non-Southern California artist that is part of the project series. We've had some artists who no longer live here, but, um, but Sadie's from Oakland. And so I think the, with the project series, choosing project series artists is not the same thing as choosing other artists that are um, monographic exhibitions at the Benton. There's other rationale for looking at the broader scope of how artists are selected. But for the project series, I try my hardest to, um, to stay tuned to uh, um, other curators, artists, faculty, collectors, and what people are talking, artists that people might be talking about, and try to do studio visits with artists, and try to go to gallery shows and museum shows. So Sadie Barnett was brought to my attention by our former assistant curator, Hannah Grossman. And um, so I first saw Sadie's work several years ago at Charlie James Gallery, and I'd read about her and I knew her work from, you know, poking around online. And I was just blown away with seeing the exhibition. It kind of had a similar setup to what we have at the Benton. We have her FBI drawings, which are beautiful new formal drawings. And at Pitzer, is the more intimate domestic space work. And at Charlie James Gallery, um, on the first floor of the gallery, as you walk into the gallery in Chinatown, there were photos and these drawings of Mercedes based on her father's FBI project. And then you go downstairs and Charlie has a basement gallery that's a little bit of a funky space but Sadie had decked that out with you know this gorgeous pink carpet the holographic vinyl couch and a lot of the other metal flake glitter objects and seeing that I was like oh my gosh we we call it you know 
she's got like a, a maximalist aesthetic and a minimalist sort of formal emphasis. And it just seemed like, okay, she's amazing. The work is fabulous. The, the work looks amazing. The content's incredible. And I think right then we were like, okay, this would be a fabulous project series. And here are her thoughts about interpreting and representing the work of a living artist. Okay, so what um, working at Pomona College, you know, we it's an academic community. And one thing I think on a on sort of on the very broadest level is imagining the cohort of students shifting every, you know, every year, but kind of every four years. And thinking about our ex- exhibition program, along with our collection and the other exhibits that we have and wanting, imagining for students, wanting to have a variety, a diversity of media, a diversity of historical periods, a diversity of um, perspectives, styles, you know, a broad range of content and issues and types of work that you might experience. I feel like it's, it's really important for artists to be able to you know, really look at and address our contemporary moment and some of the most pressing issues of our time. And um, those pressing issues can be many and varied. And so I think that that's, you know, that kind of perspective is important to me. And here are Rebecca's reflections about the impact seeing the show actualized in the gallery has had. I can think of one interesting story that was really inspiring for me. One day, you know, I was at work in my office and I thought, I need a break. I need to stretch my legs. I'm going to walk down and walk through the galleries. And as I was walking down the art hall, I saw two young teenagers outside, you know, in the courtyard with cameras and skateboards and kind of, you know, peering in the window, looking at stuff. And I just went out to, to ask them, you know, did they have any questions? Do they have an appointment? And they, you know, was this an art museum? We we didn't know it was here. And it turned out, I think they were high school students from somewhere in Pomona. And they had, they were, had, they were doing, you know, taking films and shooting. And I said, well, if you're interested, I'm happy to walk you through. And so I, I brought them in and I kind of, um, you know, I, I tagged on to Maddie and the other people who were visiting, but I took them through Alison Sars' show and then Sadie Barnett, and they loved Sadie Barnett, and they asked if they could take photos, and they were posing, and they were blown away by the mugshot work of Sadie's father, Rodney Barnett, and they both just started striking all these poses next to that, and they were smiling, and they were like, oh my God, this, you know, they didn't know this existed, they didn't know art like this existed, and I just, that just gave me chills then. And it's even giving me a chill now to think about it, you know, that they didn't know what to expect. And then seeing, you know, work like that, you know, and maybe is it, you know, someone they know that might look like that. And so having an experience of what could be in this really formal building and then, you know, feeling welcomed. And um, so I thought that was a great experience. And now let's hear from the artist, Sadie Barnett. I am an artist that is from Oakland, California. And I always start by saying that because I think it's not 
just, you know, the place I was born, but it really is a part of who I am. Um, I think that so much of my work, you know, it's not necessarily about Oakland, but Oakland is kind of just embedded in the way that I tell my stories in the way that my aesthetic um, kind of has this style and swagger to it. So much of it comes out of the culture, the music, the politics, the style of, you know, Oakland, California, which is just one of those places that has sort of a disproportionate amount of amazing things coming out of a pretty small city. So that is definitely one of, you know, the big influences on my trajectory. Um, I came to art, you know, not really knowing much about contemporary art, definitely not knowing that it could be a job and not really understanding, you know, how many living artists are working and talking and thinking all together today. But I really came to art through photography, which was just my way of sort of surviving high school. Um, And I think another thing that ended up being a big influence on my life was when I was in high school, I was um, really active in this organization called Destiny Arts Center up here in the Bay. And it was described as a violence prevention center for youth using dance and martial arts. But it was really, I think the first place where I realized that I had something to say and also that I had a kind of responsibility to a larger community to you know, share my story and hear other people's story and just kind of engage with the world um, in a critical and creative way. So that was also a big influence on my life. Um, and yeah, so I barely graduated high school, as I mentioned. I pretty much would just cut class and go to the dark room all the time. Um, but I ended up going to CalArts for undergrad, which was a way for me to find a program that um, kind of worked with the ways that I didn't fit into the school system previously. And I really flourished there. And that's where I learned about, you know, the art world um, for better and worse, the good, the bad and the ugly, um, and really saw that that would be my trajectory and my path. And after CalArts, I actually had the opportunity to work in the studio of Charles Gaines and Andrea Bowers, who were both huge mentors um, for me then and now. And also I realized that the only other two exhibitions that had been a collaboration between the Benton Museum and Pitzer the only two other exhibitions that they did, you know, both sites was an exhibition of Andrea Bowers and an exhibition of Charles Gaines. So it feels very kind of full circle and, you know, in line with this amazing legacy of mentorship for me to have um, this opportunity to present these exhibitions kind of in that, um, in that vein. Yeah, Rebecca and I were talking a little bit about both the Gaines and the Bowers show and kind of, um, the history of like the project series and how you're kind of a continuation of that, like legacy, I guess, or that, that school of like mentors. And I don't know, that's, that's that vein of like contemporary art, I should say. I'm curious about how legacy and legend came about um, and kind of the process of preparing the work for the show or like the concept behind the show. Um, It's a beautiful show and it's, it feels like 
a slice of life, but also something that's part of um, a greater history too. Yeah, so with this exhibition, Legacy and Legend, and, you know, in my mind, it's one exhibition, but it has two parts. So I think of it sort of as like a record with an A side and a B side or something. Um, And so I think of the exhibition at the Benton as legacy and the exhibition at Pitzer as legend. And I can say, you know, a little bit more about why each word is associated with one part of the exhibition. But I think to step backwards a little bit, you know, thinking about this work, I have to start at kind of the beginning of the project that I've been working on for a few years now that attempts to, you know, reclaim this FBI file that was amassed on my father during his time as a young activist um, with the Black Panthers and working with Angela Davis to secure her freedom. Um, And basically the way that this project began was that my family filed a Freedom of Information Act request in 2011. And after almost five years of back and forth with the FBI, we received a 500 page, really intense surveillance file. Um, I think that a lot of times when we hear the word surveillance, you know, it might sound just like a passive observation, collecting of information. Um, But what we found and what, you know, can be evidenced through studying history is that it was so much more invasive than that. It was harassment, it was intimidation, it was, you know, fomenting of personal disputes within political organizations. It was even assassination at times. We found out that my father was fired from his job at the post office for living with a woman he wasn't married to. Um, You know, they tried to dig up dirt on my father and that was the only thing they could find was that he wasn't married and was living with you know, the mother of his firstborn child, which seems like it would be a good thing and not a bad thing. But of course, we know the real reason that he was fired was because of his activism. Um, So anyway, this is just, you know, sort of the tip of the iceberg of the things that we, you know, experienced reading this file. And I think my first reaction was, you know, fear and kind of a retroactively wanting to protect my young father who, you know, at the time, that I'm reading the files, he was much younger than I was at the time that they're talking about him. So it feels, even though he's my father, I'm like looking at this young man and wanting to retroactively protect him. So that was one impulse. And the other impulse was how can I turn this into something positive? This thing that was trying to discredit my father, unravel a movement. How can I make this something that I am putting my authorship on top of? How can I make this live in my world and in my aesthetic and tell the story of my father? So basically that has been, you know, at the heart of my practice for the past few years is engaging with this source material and trying to subvert it and reclaim it. And that has looked materially like a lot of different things from, you know, archival prints to drawings, photographs, wallpapers, sculptures. Um, So, you know, we can probably get into some of the specifics of that a bit more, but that is really the, you know, where this project comes from. Wow. Yeah. It is um, looking at the show in the gallery. I have closest access to the, the 
legacy part at Pomona and um, seeing the imagery of like, you know, like images of like girlhood and like um, images of like innocence on like on top of or like juxtaposing very clinical and very um, cold language that's on these documents. It's really powerful to like be in the gallery space and you get a sense of what it was, what it's maybe a little bit of a sense of what it's like to be part of a family whose history has been affected by the government, you know, like firsthand. And yeah, I really appreciate the show a lot. Moving on, I'm curious as to what did you, um, how did you make, how did you go about making these like gorgeous and like precisely printed or made prints and the photographs and what was your, kind of like your material process for the works in the show? Yeah, so the, I think after, you know, working for a while with this archival material and constantly trying to push, you know, sort of the limits of my authorship and wanting to, in some capacities, you know, let the archival work speak for themselves, but also, you know, have a very palpable tension between my world and the intended bureaucratic weaponized bureaucracy of COINTELPRO or the counterintelligence program, which was the name for this really intense project to dismantle, you know, activism at the time. And it wasn't just, you know, the Black liberation movement. It was also anti-war activists. And all of this was under the direction of J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI at that time. And somehow for like almost 50 years, which is kind of unprecedented, you know, really within a democracy to have one person in that position of power for so long. And that's, you know, a whole nother kind of avenue to go down, you know, for those who are interested, um, especially, you know, at the context of a university, um, you know, thinking about who this J. Edgar Hoover person was and the policy, um, I think is a fascinating study. But to really think about the drawing process, I think really what happened was that I wanted to I wanted to slow down the process of making these files and I wanted to really kind of turn up the level of transmutation within, you know, the works becoming mine or the files becoming mine. So the works in the legacy exhibition are all actually handmade drawings. They are 60 inches by 48 inches. So, you know, when you're standing in front of them, you really kind of look up at them and they loom over you, you know, quite different than document size. So they're blown up and I create them with this process of creating stencils and masking off sections of the paper and then using powdered graphite. Um, and then peeling up the stencil. So all of the white that you see in the drawings is, you know, the negative space paper and all of the dark areas are powdered graphite. And I was really interested in how the graphite, it both is very dark and has a depth to it, but it also emits a little bit of light and metallic kind of sheen on the surface, but also thinking of it as just a kind of, you know, regular material graphite pencils like something that would be around in an office it doesn't feel you know particularly like 
an arty material, but just really trying to push it to the limit of itself. And then there are a few of the drawings that also have these spray paint gestures on top of them. And I have been using the spray paint in relation to the FBI files for a while, really thinking about, you know, this conversation between my generation as like an 80s baby and this, you know, 1960s teletype, very officious looking document um, and thinking about graffiti and tagging and that as kind of an act of reclamation or claiming space. So I'm essentially, you know, tagging on these drawings and I have to do that part after all the detailed stenciling and working the graphite into the paper. So it's a bit nerve wracking to then like go in with these gestures that you can't really necessarily control, you know, how it will come out. But I think that also adds to the tension of like this really controlled, detailed, um, you know, fine lines and small text, and then these kind of more um, gestural spray paint, unpredictable drips. Um, And yeah, I should mention, as you mentioned, like the adornments of roses, um, bows, even a few Hello Kitties on top of these documents was really um, kind of trying to insert my own like redactions, my own you know secret language, my own lexicon of maybe unknowable, unsurveillable um, you know codes, and also really thinking about especially with flowers, you know, flowers are a way to show love. They're a way to mourn. Um, You know, they come from this, like these domestic sort of rituals of caring for each other, you know, in good times and in bad. So I really wanted to really, you know, both with the act of spending time, you know, in my studio, pouring over these drawings and with the flowers really sort of try to heal um, some of the pain and trauma that has come to families because of this, um, you know, state intervention. Yeah, there is just hearing you talk more about it. I'm able to like reflect on my time in the gallery where I'm observing like this tension. There is like the tension between like the severity of the texts themselves and then the, the more personal and like, yeah, it makes you think about, makes you think about like the people behind like, all of these documentaries that you see and that everybody has a family and yeah, that point of, um, you know, bringing like the personal element to it. I think my, my goal with it is it's not, you know, to humanize my father in the way of like, I need to make a case for his humanity because I don't think that I need to, but I think that it is important to, you know, maybe step away from just thinking about the Black Panthers or historical figures as these kind of archetypal figures that only existed in one way, when in reality, yeah, everybody is part of a family. Everybody has, you know, their soft side and their more public side and their joking side and their serious side and their complicated, you know, human selves. And so I think to me, I really want to, you know, locate that like history with a capital H within the family context um, in hopes that people will look to their own families and think, oh, you know, let me 
interview my grandmother, get out my iPhone and record these stories because all of the important history exists within, you know, the living room at the dining room table. It's all these, you know, human stories, um, person sized histories that we carry with us. And so I think, yeah, there's an element of humanizing it in a way that makes it feel less like, you know, my father was the exception to the rule or was this hero, but actually he was a part of, you know, a very grassroots on the ground, um, you know, effort that involved so many people who may have gone on to do all kinds of different things with their lives. You know, the Black Panthers wasn't just like the few famous name, you know, names, mostly men that we hear about. It was so many, many people on the ground and um, people of, you know, all different types of personalities. And I think that is one of the things that I hope this work does is kind of like make a more three-dimensional portrait rather than this kind of archetype that we often see. Yeah. And I, I definitely, that I feel like that definitely comes through in the show and I'm from Southern California. So just kind of like being able to see the places that he was like active in, in like my mind's eye also adds to that. I mean, the location of the show being in Southern California, I think hopefully help like viewers kind of understand that also. And it's in their backyard, you know, it's right here. I was wondering, this was after we planned, um, but I'm curious if you have any highlights of putting the show together. Was there anything like really positive that you took away from it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was really, special about the exhibition is that it's the first time all of the FBI drawings that I've made have come together. Um, And so, you know, one has been on display by itself in like the context of a group exhibition, but to have all of the drawings that I've made so far in this series come together was really special. Um, You know, most well, all of the drawings were made during this, you know, pandemic, which continues to be our moment in different ways. But at the sort of height of, you know, the very beginning of our world changing really fast, one of the silver linings for me was that I actually had more time in my studio and was able to really develop this drawing process and was able to scale up these drawings to a size that I think this content, you know, really deserves. And so, basically, you know, on a personal level, making these drawings was really a journey for me to get through a really scary, challenging, infuriating time that, you know, revealed and exacerbated so many of the inequities of our world and also just made walking around in the world, you know, super scary. Um, Making these drawings was really cathartic for me. And so to see them all up together has definitely been a highlight. And I think another highlight is just you know, working with a a lot of people, working with a team, you know, working with all of the curators and installers and framers and shippers and photographers. It takes so many people to make an exhibition and to have all of these experts and people who are so dedicated to what they do really help me tell my father's story and tell my family's story. It feels really significant and it feels like everybody is kind of helping to, you know, 
get this work into the archives, helping to get this work, you know, discussed in classrooms and in, you know, the public and in press. And so to me, it's so much more than just the task at hand or showing up to work. It's like all of these efforts of everybody coming together to really have this work move in the world to me is just something that's really meaningful. And I think for any artist, you know, when you get to a point where you have a team around you, it's just really makes the work be able to be at such a higher level when you have someone who's an expert in their field, bringing their work and attention to your work. It's just really, um, it's not lost on me how, how major that is. And I guess another highlight is the catalog. Um, I think that the catalog really reflects the exhibitions, reflect um, my work and working with Kimberly the um, from Content Object, the book designer, was really um, an amazing collaboration. And she really kind of got into the world of my work and designed the book, I think, you know, from that perspective without being too literal. And so I'm so excited for the exhibition catalog to, you know, be able to go places and, you know, reach beyond, you know, who's necessarily able to come to California and see the exhibition, especially while travel is still difficult for people. Um, I think the book will kind of live its own life and that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know how much of myself right now I'll include, but like, there is something that I personally like relate to, um, in your work. I'm, I'm very close with my dad. My dad and I are like, I have a very good relationship with him. Uh, he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but like, you know, I think, and I'm an art major here at Pomona and I might have questions for you about Cal arts, but, um, yeah. but happy. thanks. Um, but there's something about telling your story um, about family being a woman, like, you know, being a, a young child, even like I've been working and talking about like my own, like girlhood and growing up in my work lately. And that for a while it was, I was like, this is just something for me because nobody wants to like, like think about young girls and like as autonomous beings who like have thoughts and emotions and get their feelings hurt um, in serious ways. And, and so I don't know, there's, there's just something very special about your work. And I think it's for me, even like, I, I can't iterate how much I like appreciate having it here, especially like right now. And yeah. Um, but back to your, um, back to like kind of talking about the catalog and like the aesthetic and how it's coming together. I think that your aesthetic is something that is, um, very like approachable for people. Like sometimes like walking into an art space, they're like, nothing here is recognizable. Nothing here seems familiar. And so it's even harder to understand what's going on in the work sometimes. And I think that this show particularly is like for everybody, like art people who know art, people who don't really engage with the arts. And I think that it's, yeah, I think it's, it's a perfect like homecoming for people on campus show too, you know, to like feel like the the work and the messaging behind the work is accessible to them. Amazing. Yeah, that's something that's definitely important to me. And it's it's never felt like a challenge or a translation to make work that's both accessible to someone who has no experience looking at art, you know, in a kind of gallery or museum context, to also, you know, speaking to the kind of, you know, academic tradition in which I'm 
you know, trained in and am in a lineage of an art history. It's never felt hard for me to straddle both of those things because I feel like there's just, you know, always these different trajectories operating at the same time. And some people get one reference and some people get another reference and some people get both references. And that's like really exciting. But to me, it's always um, important to me, but it's not, you know, something that I have to dial up or dial down. I just kind of am naturally, I think, existing in maybe two worlds at a time. And so it's easy for me to kind of, you know, talk to a wide range of audiences at the same time. Do you have anything else like about or like a summation of what you hope visitors kind of walk away with or experience while seeing this show? I guess, I mean, I guess I, you know, I haven't maybe said as much about the legend space. So, you know, as I mentioned, Legacy is the exhibition at Benton or the part of the exhibition that's at Benton. And I really was thinking about the word legacy as both kind of, you know, the positives and negatives associations that we think of as legacy, right? So there, you know, legacy is something to kind of be proud of. It could maybe be an inheritance, but it can also be like the things that we inherit without, you know, wanting to like, um, a messed up climate or like, you know, the legacies of slavery and enslavement in this country. Um, so to me, legacy is both kind of the, you know, the, the fruits and the challenges of our past. And legend, I think of a bit more future looking, although legend is kind of a story in the past. It also, to me, it's like what we're doing, what is happening now that will soon be a legend. Um, so like what will be, you know, the future past um, in a kind of like time bending way. And so the space at Pitzer is really meant to be a kind of portal into the world that is maybe, you know, impervious to the state surveillance, um, the world that exists, you know, in the souls of people that cannot be, um, you know, trodden down by the systems that we're living under, um, you know, the imagination, the love and energy between families, you know, the creativity and poetry and magic of just kind of surviving this system together. That is where the glitter comes from and some of the family photos and the more intimate moments of like birthday cakes and, you know, little cousins and photographs and portraits of me and rhinestones and gold and just all of that kind of exuberance in that space is really pointing to maybe an anecdote or the anecdote that's already within all of us that, you know, we continue to be amazing and beautiful and powerful in a world that is not always those things. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. This episode was produced by Hannah Avalos, Justine Bay Baez, Caroline Eastburn, Aaron Hogan, and Victoria Sancho Lobos. This episode was recorded by Hannah Avalos. This episode was written by Hannah Avalos and Victoria Sancho Lobos. This episode was edited by Hannah Avalos. A special thanks to artist Sadie Barnett and senior curator Rebecca McGrew for being featured in this episode. 
Additionally, we would like to thank Xavier Williams, Pomona College Class of 22, for producing this original piece of music for Inside the Benton. Thank you.